with a woman. Just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are, four, there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look. I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor." Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Let us pray. Oh, Father, hallowed be your name. Father, there truly is none like you. You are the creator of all things, and yet you have seen fit to make a people for yourself and to bring us to you and to gather us through your Son. Father, we are grateful to be your people, and we are grateful to be gathered before you here this morning. And we pray as we look into your word that you would speak to our hearts. Father, that you would speak to your people, that we would hear within this your voice. And Father, that you would be working in the hearts of your people. Thank you for this glorious passage and this glorious story of what took place among the Samaritans. May it work in us an example, and may it stir in us a love for the lost and seeing them come to saving faith in Christ. Thank you for this morning, Lord. May it be a sweet offering to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. Good morning, church. It is good to be back with you again. Well, today we are going to bring this incredible story of Jesus' engagement with a Samaritan woman to a close. And as you all well know, the ending of this, how it all turns out, uh, does not disappoint by any means. What we have before us is really the first great revival recorded in the New Testament. In case that is a term that is unfamiliar to you, 
Now, revival is a sovereign work of God wherein a mass of people, usually in a particular region or location, are at once taken out of darkness and brought into the light. It is an awakening from the dead. It is being revived spiritually. It is an outpouring of God's Spirit as many all at once come to Christ and are born from above. America has experienced various revivals over the years. The most famous, of course, being what we call the Great Awakening that took place in colonial New England around the mid-1700s. It was when God blessed the preaching of men like Jonathan Edwards and, and George Whitfield that an incredible amount of people were awakened to the nature of their sin, the state of their soul, and to the glory of the Savior. And in the, the beginnings of that revival, a sermon that God particularly used that was in many ways the igniter for the, the entire thing was a sermon by Jonathan Edwards, dubbed the sinners in the hands of an angry God. No doubt that sermon is found very offensive to many modern sensibilities, but indeed it is a sermon full of truth, packed full of the reality of our sin and God's hatred for it. And it was that truth that people needed so that they could understand that they needed a Savior. And as a result, revival broke out. Well, in similar manner, we see at the end of this story that this was a people who understood that they needed a Savior. Now, the climax of it all was their declaration that He indeed is the Savior of the world. This truly was a revival. The first revival we have recorded since the coming of Christ into this world. And when you pull back and you look at how all of this happened, how it unfolded, this is really a supernatural story that we have here. And it all began with a seemingly random conversation. It was an evangelistic encounter when Jesus, tired as he was from his journey, simply engaged an unsuspecting Samaritan woman by asking her for a drink. Now, she was taken aback by this request, of course, because Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, but a conversation ensued nonetheless. And in this conversation, Jesus offered her eternal life. He demonstrated that he knew everything about her by raising her checkered past and showing her that he even knows the depths of her sin. He taught her what true worship is going to be in the new covenant. And he declared that the Father is seeking true worshipers who will worship him in spirit and truth. And last of all, for the very first time in the gospel, he explicitly revealed his identity and tells this woman that He is, in fact, the Messiah that she has been waiting for. And that is where we left off last week, and that is where we will pick up today as we look at what happens as a result of this incredible conversation, which ultimately ends in revival. 
As we look at this, we're going to see in this conclusion to the encounter with the woman at the well, we're going to see it break up into three parts. The initial response to the conversation, the lesson for the disciples, and then the harvest of the Samaritans. And in these final scenes, it's my hope that our hearts would be stirred afresh with a love to see sinners saved and a desire to engage in evangelistic encounters and conversations. A desire to see the lost be found is something that we should never get over. We should never get used to the idea that when one is born again, that their eternity changes, that they are saved, that they have had their sins forgiven, that their eternal destinies have changed from an eternal hell to an eternal heaven. Christ tells us in Luke 15 that the angels of heaven rejoice when just one sinner is saved. What an atrocious thing if we ever find ourselves yawning when heaven is rejoicing. No, as, as believers who we ourselves have experienced what it means to be plucked out of the fire and given eternal life, we must keep ourselves tender to the needs of the lost and to the power of the gospel. This story really is an incredible testimony to what God can do through just a conversation about Christ. In the same way, you never know how God might use an evangelistic conversation that you might have to change someone's eternity. You too can be used in powerful ways in God's redemptive plans. And that's what I want us to be stirred with this morning. But let's look at how this amazing story ends. Let's start by looking at the, the way John records the initial response to the conversation in verse 27. Look with me again at verse 27. It says, Just then his disciples came back, and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, What do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? Now I think. John included this little detail here because he wanted us to feel how significant and countercultural this conversation really was. Now, we talked about this a little bit in the first sermon on this section where Jesus initiated the conversation with this woman. But that action of, of engaging her as a Jew, a Jewish male who was a rabbi, was more jarring and a bigger deal than we can really feel or understand in our culture. Now, our culture throws out words like misogyny and sexism on a hair trigger. They are thrown out all the time. If equal outcome is not achieved in all areas of life between men and women, then surely, according to our culture, that must be because we live in a misogynistic and sexist culture. Obviously, we know that, biblically speaking, such ideas are not true and are, frankly, ridiculous. Precisely because they do not leave room for the very real differences in the way that God has designed men and women, in the way He's designed them to function. However, 
One problem with all of this that we need to be mindful of is that we can hear these unfounded charges so often that we become numb to those realities where they do exist. We see the same problem with racism. Our culture says everything is racist. Even math is now being labeled as racist. If you are white, you are automatically a racist. And sadly, because of the absolute absurdity of these claims, the danger is that we respond by just rolling our eyes at any instance or claim of real racism. Racism is a real sin. And sexism is a real sin. To think one is superior because of their sex or their ethnicity is a sin against God that we should still be willing to call out and that we should still be avoiding in our own lives. Now, for clarity, those sins are common to all mankind, not just to white males. Women can be sexist too. Minorities can be racist too. Don't buy into the lie of our culture that tries to demonize one particular demographic of people by redefining terms. Yes, these sins do exist, and everyone is capable of them. But in a society that celebrates race-baiting and Me Too movements, we cannot allow the lunacy of the culture to push us into a place where we cannot even recognize real sin for what it is. So why do I say all this? When it comes to an evaluation of first century Jewish culture, especially among rabbis and religious teachers, it was, for the most part, by and large, a very sexist culture. And we need to be able to willing to recognize that and to call it out. For example, no other rabbi would have had this conversation with a woman, much less a Samaritan woman. In fact, They held to, and it is recorded, that to carry on lengthy conversations with a woman, any woman, including one's own wife, was seen as a waste of time that would distract one from the study of the law and could even lead to Gehenna, hell. One known and respected rabbi of the time said that to teach one's daughter the law was as evil as teaching her lechery, prostitution, A common prayer among the rabbis at the time was, Blessed art thou, O Lord, who has not made me a woman. Now this was indeed a sexist culture. And tragically, as a result, many of them did not even value the women of their own household, their own wives and daughters, because of the nature of the culture. And none of them would have been caught dead having a conversation with a strange woman, especially a Samaritan woman, in public. That's why this was so significant. In this evangelistic encounter, Jesus is breaking all the chauvinistic rules of the day, and He is valuing women on equal ground with men, because He created both in the image of God. And if anyone knows their equal value, it is Christ the Lord our Creator. But this was a scandalous thing to do. And that's why John says, when the disciples returned, they marveled. Remember, John was one of the disciples who was returning. So he can speak authoritatively on how how they felt or what they were thinking at the time. 
And they were in a state of total shock. They were taken off guard. They were marveling at this situation. So much so that they couldn't even bring themselves to ask the questions that were on their mind. To the woman, what do you seek? What what do you want? Or to Christ, why are you talking to her? They didn't voice those questions, but they were thinking them. But both of these questions were significant. John included them here for a reason. When John uses the word seek there, what do you seek? He's signaling back to verse 23. Ironically, the woman wasn't seeking anything as they supposed. But it was the Father who was seeking those who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. He was seeking her. And it was Christ who sought her out for that very purpose. And that's who she became. And our question to Christ, even though not voiced, why are you talking to her? will be answered after the woman leaves. But look at what she does when she does leave. Look at verse 28. It says, So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Now, notice John notates that she left her water jar. Now, different people have speculated as to why she left her water jar. The Scripture doesn't tell us that. Some have suggested that she was leaving there because she was supplying Christ with the drink that he requested at the beginning of their conversation. Maybe. Some think that there might be some symbolism there of her leaving behind the natural water because she has just drank from the living water when she believed upon Christ. Maybe. I, I personally think the, the most obvious answer is probably the right answer. She left it there because she was in a hurry to go tell others of what just happened. And she was intending on coming back. She was going to gather people and bring them back. Those water jars were huge. They carried a lot of water. It would have taken her a long time to do it if she took her water jar with her. So she leaves it there. She's coming back. She was leaving not because the disciples made her feel awkward or she was just trying to get out of the situation. She was leaving because of the last words of Christ. I who speak to you am He. I am the Messiah. He had just told her who He is, that He is the Savior of the world. And she believed Him. And because she believed Him, she had to go get others and bring them back. Her first instinct is to share this good news with others, which is the natural thing to do for anyone who has encountered Christ. As Calvin said in his commentary, this is the nature of faith, that when we have become partakers of eternal life, we wish to bring others to share it with us. And we see that on display here. So she leaves her water jar, knowing she's coming back, and she runs into town. And notice what she tells the people. Come. Come and see a man who told me all I ever did. Now, that language should sound familiar to you. We've crossed this language before. The first time we saw this was with Jesus. 
with his very first two disciples, Andrew and John, John the writer of this gospel. When they inquired of Christ where he was staying, as they were trying to figure out if he was the Lamb of God, Jesus invited them to come and see. After that, they had gone and fetched both Peter and Philip and brought them to Christ. And then Philip goes after Nathanael and tells him that they have found the Messiah. And he invites Nathanael to come and see. And now this Samaritan outcast woman has on her mouth the very same language of the early disciples. Come and see. And I think John is very much indicating that she's using the same language because she has believed and become a disciple herself. And the subject of her proclamation also gives credence to this. She says to all the people, Come and see a man who told me all I ever did. She raises the topic of her sin in order to testify to Christ. It wasn't but just moments before in her conversation with Christ where she was trying to hide that reality. I have no husband. She wanted to move on past that subject. She was ashamed. She had no desire to broach that topic. And it was likely that her checkered past was the very reason why she was at the well in the middle of the day alone in the first place. She not only avoided the subject, she avoided people because of this subject. Her shame had controlled her life. And yet in one encounter with Christ, she runs back to where all the people are and she no longer cares. Her thrill of what just happened overshadowed any shame. And now she's willing to share it publicly in order to draw others to Him. And how often is this true? How often do we see, how many testimonies have, have you heard where someone is just willing to talk and openly share about the shame of their past because they know it has been dealt with in Christ? There is such freedom in Christ that no longer does one have to be guarded about what they have done because there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see this, you see this often with, with new believers. In their zeal for what has happened to them, they don't even care. They don't even care how, how inappropriate they might be. They just want to share. They just want to tell everybody that's happened so they can know how much Christ has forgiven them. And that's what's going on with this woman. Her testimony was not elaborate, nor sophisticated, nor was it theologically deep, but it was true. She met the Messiah, and he told her everything. And look what happened as a result of this woman's willingness to go share with the people. Look at verse 30. It says, They went out of the town and were coming to him. They're coming. John wants you to feel that as you read the next part. They are coming. They're coming to meet with Christ. That's the initial response to this conversation. And John has structured this in such a way that as you read this scene, you're to read it knowing the Samaritans are coming their 
way. And what happens when they arrive is revealed in verses 39 through 42. But in between, while they are coming, Jesus disciples his disciples. And he gives them a lesson that both explains his conversation with a woman and he explains what is about to happen with the Samaritan people. Look at verse 31. It says, Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. So we know at this point, Jesus was still hungry, and we know he was thirsty as well. He stated his need for a drink earlier, and he had sent the disciples into town to get food. The journey they were on, no doubt, would require them to replenish their bodies with both food and drink, especially if they were going to finish the trip. Remember, Samaria was not their destination. They are heading to Galilee from Judea, and they're not even halfway there yet. And for that reason, because they wanted to care for their rabbi, they urge him to eat some of the food that they had just acquired from the town. But for Christ, there is a more urgent matter on the table and a greater purpose to this whole scenario. So he replies to them in a way that caused some confusion. Look at verse 32. He said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Now I hope by this time, that this pattern is becoming familiar to you. Jesus is once again speaking about deep spiritual truths, and he is being heard on a literal and physical level. And this is the fourth explicit time that we have run into this in the book. In chapter 2, speaking of his body, Jesus said, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews respond with, It's taken 46 years to build this temple. Chapter 3, Nicodemus, you must be born again. How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Chapter 4, the woman at the well. If you asked me, I would give you living water. She responds with, you don't have anything to draw water with and the well is deep. And now his own disciples, I have food to eat that you do not know about. Has someone brought him something to eat? all of which shows how dull the human heart truly is. Totally in need of Christ and the Spirit of God to reveal to us the deeper things of God. And that is what he does here with his disciples. He says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. All through this gospel, Jesus is going to say that he came in order to do the Father's will. In John 6, 38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. That's what's going on here. That's why he was here. He had the end in mind from the beginning. He was here to accomplish the Father's work. And in fact, in his final hours, he prayed and John 17, in the high priestly prayer, he said, Father, I have glorified 
you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence. Jesus was about the will of the Father. But notice that he did not merely see it as his obligation or just his duty. He saw it as his food. It's what he fed off of. When he says this, he's alluding to a passage that he quoted often from Deuteronomy chapter 8. In Deuteronomy 8, Moses is speaking to the Israelites, and he's recounting their time in the desert. And he's speaking of God's actions towards them while they were in the desert. And he says this. He says, God humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. Why? That he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. You see, man was not meant to or designed to live by bread alone. Yes, physical food sustains physical life, for sure, at least for a time, and then we all die anyway. But physical food cannot sustain spiritual life, true life, life in God. Only spiritual food can do that, feeding off of the Word of God and doing the will of God. That is the food that even Christ lived by. And it is not just hearing the Word of God or reading the Word of God that truly feeds the soul. It is in hearing, obeying the Word of God. And this is why the book of James warns us, be doers of the Word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Your soul is not fed merely by hearing or knowing the Word of God. The Pharisees knew the Word of God. They knew the will of God. No, it is fed by a belief and a trust in the Word of God that results in obedience, in action. And those whose spirits have been made alive, if we do not seek to live by both intaking the Word of God and obeying the Word of God, we will become malnourished spiritually. We will become weak. We will become depressed. We will feel ourselves withering away spiritually because you cannot live by bread alone. And this is why Jesus says, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me. That which fed Him, which gave Him true sustenance, which sustained true life, was carrying out the Father's will in His life. And in this context, the Father's will is to bring in His chosen ones to find the lost who the Father has selected and chosen to be true worshipers and to bring them in like the woman at the well and the Samaritans that are to come. And that is why Christ says what He says next in verse 35. He says, Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, Lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white 
for harvest. Now, on the face of this, this language is a bit confusing. And there's some disparities in how people interpret what Jesus meant here. But most recognize that the way he introduced this, do you not say, is pointing to a common saying or a proverb of the day. Jesus used the exact same language in Matthew 16 to talk about another common proverb of the day on how they were able to recognize and discern the weather, but they couldn't discern the times that they were in. Another similar common proverb of the day was the one that we've probably all heard that says, Rome was not built in a day. And it was a proverb meant to emphasize patience. These things take time. Well, that's the same idea here. Yet four months, and then comes the harvest. But Jesus is taking that proverb, and he's saying it does not apply here. In God's kingdom, things function differently. You may say that, but it doesn't apply here. Spiritual matters do not operate the same. And he shows them what he's talking about. Before them was a real-world illustration so that they could see the truthfulness of what he was saying. He says, look, behold, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see. He could not be more explicit here. There before them was something that turned that proverb on its head. But what was it? What were they looking at? They were looking at, off in the distance, a mass of Samaritans coming towards them, seeking out the Messiah at that very moment. A crowd of people was coming their way. And as these disciples notice it for the very first time, Jesus says, the fields are white for harvest. To call a field white was a, an, another way of saying it's ripe, it's, it's ready. And he very, may well have been also playing off the common garb of the day worn by the Samaritans, which was an off-white colored tunic as this mass of Samaritans are coming and they look and they see the fields are white. There are souls ready to be harvested for God even now. And then look at what verse 36 says. He says, Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. Now what does this mean? Well, this language is an allusion to a passage that Jesus has already alluded to once at the wedding at Cana. And that is to the great passage in the book of Amos where the prophet spoke of the coming messianic age. Amos chapter 9 says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes him who sows seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. The meaning here is obvious. The spiritual labor is so paradoxically fruitful that the harvesters and the sowers are working at the same time and are harvesting a fruit. The reaper is already being paid his wages and gathering fruit during the time of sowing. 
Yes, one sows and another reaps, but they rejoice together at the gathering of this fruit. And Jesus is saying this is the fruit of eternal life. It is the fruit of souls being saved, of souls being transferred into the kingdom of light from the kingdom of darkness. This is a harvest of eternal realities of which he is speaking. A harvest of a supernatural nature. And then he says to his disciples, I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. They are about to play a part in this massive harvest, a reaping of the harvest of souls. And for most of these guys, this is only the beginning of what they're going to experience. They would continue to reap for that which they did not labor. On the day of Pentecost, Peter stood up and gives one sermon, and it says on that day that about 3,000 souls were added to the church. They had reaped a harvest that day. Those were souls that had been prepared both by Christ and John the Baptist and by the prophets and by Moses and by God Himself. But they were doing the reaping. In this immediate situation, it is both Jesus to the Samaritan woman and the Samaritan woman herself who have labored, sowing the seed. And then there's already a harvest that they are about to participate in the reaping of. And yet here, these disciples have done nothing up to this point. Nothing. In the Christian life, I don't think there is any greater privilege that God has given us than when He uses us to play any kind of role in someone else's eternal salvation. When we get to participate either in the sowing or the reaping or even the ongoing discipling, God has brought us into His outworking of redemption in an eternal soul. It is a remarkable privilege. And these guys are about to experience that. But now let's look at how they finally, how John finally concludes this great section with this harvest of the Samaritans. Look at verse 39. It says, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the, the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Clearly, these people did not show up skeptical. The woman had done a great work by boldly going back to her own people and testifying to Christ, giving her testimony of her encounter with Christ. And through her words, God had already worked in their hearts. They had believed her. So when they came, they came believing. And they urged him to stay with them some time. And he obliged. He stayed with them two days. And the mere fact that this group of Samaritans were urging a Jewish rabbi with his band of Jewish disciples, historically an enemy people, to stay with them and testified to the work of God that had already been done in their hearts. 
Prejudice cannot remain in a heart that has been affected by grace. That is just the reality. And these Samaritans believed. And because of that, the Jew-Samaritan divide did not matter anymore. Who cares? They just wanted him to stay with them. And Jesus spends time with them and his disciples for two days. And during that time, look at what happened. Look at verse 41. It says, And many more believed because of his word. This is just flat revival. Many more believed because of his word. An incredible work is going on in Samaria. And it all began with Jesus asking a Samaritan woman for a drink. Because he arrived at the right place at the right time. And going back now, we can really understand all the more the significance of that little seemingly throwaway verse at the beginning of of chapter 4, verse 4, where John says, He had to pass through Samaria. This was no geographical obligation. This was a divine appointment. And you are meant to see the hand of God all through this story. Jesus leaving Judea at the right time. His necessary trip through Samaria. His arrival at Jacob's well right before the Samaritan woman shows up. The departure of his disciples to go get food. Their return right at the climax of his conversation. The object lesson of true food in the harvest of the Samaritans who were coming at that very moment. And then a massive revival taking place at the word of a woman who was despised and rejected. God's providential hand is all over this thing, orchestrating every second to bring about His good and gracious will. Jesus had to pass through Samaria. And the final result is verse 42. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe for We have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Now, they're not denigrating the woman's testimony here. They are confirming it. They believed her words, but now their belief has been solidified. And as a result, they had, look at this, look at their confident assertion. Look at the words they use. We know that this is indeed the Savior of the world of the world. An entire village is now testifying to the truth of Christ's identity. The very identity that John the Baptist shockingly rolled out to the Jews in chapter 1 when he said that he was the Savior not just for the Jews, but he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Something that John the writer would bolster In chapter 3, when he said, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. And now, all of it is illustrated and solidified and testified to by the hated 
and despised Samaritans. What a gracious God we have. All of this beginning with a simple conversation. As we think about the the ending of this great story, I just want to leave you with a, a couple of concluding thoughts, particularly about the topic of evangelism. Sadly, evangelism and evangelistic endeavors often cause a visceral response in people. And often it's tied to bad experiences or guilt. But I think there are two real ditches that one can fall into when it comes to evangelism. One is to see it as the only purpose of the Christian life. There are many out there who believe that if you are not having so many evangelistic encounters on a weekly basis, and if you're not beating the streets nearly every day with the gospel, that you are unfaithful or perhaps even in sin. That is a ridiculous and legalistic way to live the Christian life. That is creating a law where there is no law. And it does not leave room for the many other areas of faithfulness that we are called to such as being faithful workers, Colossians 3, being faithful to our families, Ephesians 5 and 6, being faithful churchmen and women, Ephesians 4, caring for the body of Christ, caring for fellow believers, 1 John 3. The emphasis on that is huge in Scripture. So if we make evangelism the only source of faithfulness, we are, in fact, missing it. However, on the other hand, The other ditch is to see evangelism as somebody else's job and something you don't ever need to participate in. That, too, is an erroneous position. And that ditch we can easily fall into. And if I'm evaluating our church, I would say of the two ditches, the latter is the greater temptation for us. The truth is, As believers, as new creations in Christ, part of who you are now, part of your identity, is to be a proclaimer. Last week we looked at how fundamental to your identity is to be a worshiper of God. Well, wrapped up in that is the fact that you are also a proclaimer. A proclaimer of the excellencies of Christ. A proclaimer of the gospel. Listen to how the Apostle Peter defines you in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possessions, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Part of who you are and part of what you are to do is proclaim the excellencies of the Christ who has saved you. Now that does not mean that you are to be a preacher or you are to assume the role or the office of an evangelist. Nor does it mean that you are obligated to participate in, in every evangelism program that is set forth. It does not have to be programmatic. It just means that in the daily course of life, when opportunity arises, we are to be those who love the idea of getting to share the truth and testify to the truth 
of who Christ is and what he has done. Just like the woman at the well. This is testifying language. John says he testified to the people. This testifying language is all through the book of John. And that's what she did. She testified to her encounter with Christ. She bore witness about him. We're not all called to be preachers or evangelists, but we are called to testify, to bear witness to what Christ has done in our own hearts, to who he is and what he has accomplished. And as we do that, we are, we are called to expand the kingdom of God, not to just leave that to the professionals. No, that's up to the body. That's one of the great privileges of what it means to be a Christian, to be an ambassador for Christ and to play part in the reaping of souls for eternal life. You see that in this story. This whole thing, this whole thing began with a conversation and then with her testimony to her people simply about what she encountered and what she had experienced. If we overcomplicate it or put too much pressure on ourselves, we will undermine our own willingness to share the greatest news in the world, that the Savior of the world has come, that He paid the penalty for sin through His death on the cross, that He rose again and He is alive today, offering eternal life to all who would believe this glorious message. That message is is the message that we are to propagate in this world in whatever sphere of influence God has granted to us. Church, I would encourage you to stir up your heart with a love to see the lost come to Christ. Ask God for the courage to speak whenever the time comes, whenever He opens a door. Be ready to share the good news of Christ when He opens the door for that to take place. And I would challenge you to make it a part of your praying. To make it a a part of your praying even in your small groups. To pray like Paul did in Colossians chapter 4, that God would grant open doors to the gospel, opportunities for us to walk through and share the news that could change somebody's eternity. It's my hope that as times grow darker that this church would be a beacon of light in this lost and dying world. Let us be a people who love to tell the story of Jesus and His glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you that the Savior of the world has come. Thank you that we have encountered him. Thank you that we know him. And thank you that you have called us to introduce others to him. To go and compel others to come and see this glorious Savior who will bestow forgiveness on all who believe. God, I pray for us. I pray for everyone here that we would have the courage to share this great news. That you would make this church an evangelistic church, a church who loves to share the gospel. A church who loves to see the lost saved. A church who loves to see this message propagated in a world full of bad news.
Lord, help us to share the good news. Help us to show forth Christ to whomever you would place in our path. And help us to have the courage to open our mouths and speak. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and